who finds himself drowning in a bucket of cream has two choices. Drown or fight so hard he churns that cream into butter. And simply climbs out. Ladies and gentlemen, for the final segment of Overdrive, this is Patrick Henningsen, your host here at the Sunday Wire. Thank you so much for rejoining us. Thank you very much uh, for our previous guest, David Ellis. If you missed any of this live broadcast, you can catch it after the show in podcasting format in its recorded form on a number of platforms. We're up on Spotify, iHeartRadio, fantastic platform if you've got a smart TV, uh, but also up on ACR's Mothership at Spreaker.com. There's a great channel there where you can just quickly access all of ACR's programming up on Spreaker, but you can also get it on the AlternateCurrentRadio.com website and also this show at 21st Century Wire. Thank you for rejoining us. Now, I'm joined uh, on the live link with our roving correspondent for culture and sport. Basil Valentine is joining us on the line. Hello, Basil. Good evening, Patrick. Great to be with you. Great to be with you, too. Great to be with you, too. And uh, let's uh, start off here with uh, the commotions. I'm going to play a little clip. Uh, This was the uh, skirmish broke out in the House of Commons. And you could, uh, I don't know if we have in this clip, but John John Burkow, the speaker. Order! 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 Pretty good impersonation. calling, Calling for order in the House of Commons. Listen to this. I beg to move the motion standing in my name under the Fixed Term Parliament Act. The truth is, Mr. Speaker, they only believe in democracy when it delivers the results that they want. The Prime Minister shouldn't have to shout in order to make himself heard, and the same will apply when the leader of the opposition gets to his feet, the Prime Minister. They they say they can't hear. How's that? (laughs) How's that? for an election. But as keen as we are, we are not prepared to risk inflicting the disaster of no deal. Order, Mr. Philp. You're very loud and rancorous. Calm down, young man. You're getting very overexcited. Very, very overexcited. You are very, 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 very overexcited. Very overexcited. You can do a lot better than that. Okay, there it is. There it is, Basil. That's the, uh, the scene right now in the House of Commons. Uh, so we just came off a week where Boris Johnson asked for another general election. Of course, it was uh, turned down by the opposition. And now we're going ahead, proroguing a parliament. Parliament has been dissolved, but there's a, a lawsuit, another potential uh, lawsuit or court case regarding the legality of this and whether whether Boris Johnson misled the queen uh, when he asked her to dissolve parliament. And uh, a number of people, including, I think, Dominic Greaves, uh, and others, Keir Starmer's in on the effort to, they want to sequester all the communications, all the communications, te- text messages, WhatsApp messages, emails, everything, everything. And they want to take it and examine it because they think that something criminal 
has taken place with regards to Johnson's asking for the dissolving of Parliament. Uh, so that's what's happening. What do you think of this situation right now? Unprecedented. I mean, we don't know what Johnson said to the Queen. The minutes of the Queen's meetings with her prime ministers are never made public. So we can only hazard a guess and whatever information Dominic Grieve, I mean, himself, uh, a conservative attorney general, that's why I say it's unprecedented to have a fellow conservative former top law officer in the UK government accusing the current conservative prime minister of acting illegally is absolutely extraordinary. But any information that he, Keir Starmer, or anybody else presents is going to be the fluff around the outside of the substance of what Johnson said to the Queen. I think it was at Balmoral. And unless somebody's able to produce the minutes of that meeting, even if the noise around what he said he was going to say appears to contradict the official version of events, he'll always be able to deny it because he'll be able to say, ah, yes, but that isn't what I actually said in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it looks like this, this motion was brought, this uh, humble address motion was brought uh, to basically force the government to publish all of the yellow Yellowhammer documents. This is the Yellowhammer is all the worst case scenarios uh, with regards to a no-deal Brexit. That's uh, across all the different industry sectors. That sort of uh, Operation Fear writ large. By the way, we set up, get ready for Operation Fear, I think it was last week, the week before, and this this is part of that. So they've asked for all these different things to be basically gathered from all of these different aides. They've even named them here, uh, all these, including the following individuals, Hugh Bennett, Simon Burton, uh, Dominic Cummings, Nikki DaCosta, Tom Irvin, Sir Roy Stone, Christopher James, Lee Kane, Beatrice Timpson, etc., etc. So they're even naming names. They want all of their devices. And so there's a civil rights legal issue here as well, Basil. Because this itself is unprecedented. So, you know, do, do people have a right to privacy in politics if they're acting in ministerial positions or they're aides to ministers? Are, are, it's a dangerous precedent here, perhaps, if people are afraid that uh, everything's going to be, uh, you know, sequestered. Uh, by some warrant, uh, if something goes well, wrong. Well, none of us have any right to privacy these days, Patrick. You know that. That, that was all swept away by the investigation, the uh, you know, Regulatory Powers Act, various other bits of legislation. Your WhatsApp messages can be read. Your emails can be read. So I don't see why ministers should be able to, or official aides of servants or anybody else, should be allowed to claim a right to privacy that they deny everybody else. Mm, good point. Good point. We'll take that point as well. And it's interesting because when the when the Dirac leaks uh, were coming, uh, the government was saying the opposite. They were saying that, uh, well, they were saying, no, um, people do not have a right uh, to, to see any of this information. And uh, politicians must be protected. Diplomats must be protected. The press has no business knowing. So this seems to be, Basil, a moving, a moving target, depending on what the situation is, uh, the key lawmakers are always interpreting these laws in a different way for each situation, depending on, you know, I guess whether they can control the outcome. Uh, that's what it seems to me. Very much, very much so, um, including the legality of this proroguing of Parliament, which last week was declared unlawful by a Scottish court at the same time as being declared lawful by a Northern Irish court, which further underlines the... Uh, 
frankly, in a way, you've got to say the ludicrousness of the British Constitution. How can you have a situation where something which would appear to be as relatively straightforward as suspending Parliament can produce two diametrically opposite uh, legal rulings in two different constituency parts of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And, and is, this, is this on a collision course with the Supreme Court, that, that particular case, Basil? Uh, I, I, think, I certainly think so. I mean, I, I think the, uh, the Remainers intend on pursuing it because as things stand at the moment, where we are in terms of the timeline towards Brexit is that uh, Boris has said no way is he going to ask for an extension. Um, but of course, the uh, final act of uh, this very short parliament last week was to force the prime minister, whoever it may be, on October the 14th, to ask for an extension. Then uh, we've got the speaker, John Burko, saying he is going to prevent, last week he said he's going to prevent the prime minister from acting illegally, uh, should he choose to do so, and not ask for the extension. Quite how the Speaker is going to do that. Once again, we're getting into the you know very sort of labyrinthine, arcane byways and alleyways of uh, British legal precedent, whether or not the, the Speaker has a trump card up his sleeve that he can sort of somehow uh, you know, withdraw his consent or in some ways stymie the actions of the executive i don't know likewise the supreme court can they take out you know can somebody take out an, an injunction against johnson uh, acting illegally we just don't know all the balls are up in the air basically but what johnson is pinning, pinning his hopes on is that he will be able to stitch together some kind of deal he's claiming Tremendous progress, huge progress in talks, something that Juncker and everybody else has rejected. The key sticking point over the possibility of a deal being, of course, the Irish border. And that's where uh, Johnson's ministers at the moment are talking up the possibility of, of a compromise and that being the key to unlocking the deal. Because I think what Johnson really wants to do is to you know, produce a rabbit out of a hat in terms of a deal uh, at some point over the next three weeks or something, rush it through the House of Commons on the basis that uh, the rump of the Tory party, shorn of the 21 or so Remainers, will garner enough support from the rest of the House to get his deal through, even if only from, from uh, opposition MPs who say simply, we want no more of this, we've had enough. And uh, then uh, after we've left on the 31st, he goes to the country as the man who delivered Brexit. Yeah, that looks like the plan. That looks like the plan. There's been olive branches, or at least rumors of olive branches, to the Tory rebels. Uh, this was also in the press uh, last couple of days. Here's John Burko on exactly that thing that you just mentioned, uh, Basil, right here. And this is just before he, he, walks, he walks out of Parliament uh, with a standing ovation from one side of the uh, bench anyway. But here he is. This is not, however, a normal prorogation. It is not difficult. It is not standard. It's one of the longest for decades. And it represents, not just in the minds of many colleagues, but huge numbers of people outside, an act of executive fiat. Okay, there's John Burko. So he, 
he's definitely taking sides, as you said, Basil. Uh, so he's in a he's in quite a key position, isn't he, the speaker? Yes, he's in a, an absolutely unique position, of course. And uh, on top of it all, he declared his own resignation, or that he was going to step down on October the thirty first, come what may, which came as a great shock to everybody. So. The suggestion behind that is that he's prepared to act in some kind of, uh, you know, iconoclastic way or something, you know, in order to, uh, I mean, he's an arch remainer himself. So I think he's going to do absolutely everything within his powers to uh, to try and stop us from leaving on October the 31st. Quite how he's going to go about it. I don't think anybody knows, including possibly himself. Okay, well, there's another another character that has uh, suddenly emerged, actually, and he's been very quiet for the longest time. His name is David Cameron. If you remember, he used to be prime minister of the UK, and apparently he's got a book out, and uh, they all have to do their memoirs, and they all have to make a big splash when they do them. And he's basically saying that uh, he's really slagging off uh, Boris Johnson in this book. This has really got a lot of a lot of tension this last couple of days. He said that Boris Johnson did not believe in Brexit during the referendum campaign and backed leave because it would help his political career, claims David Cameron. Uh, and so he also had to go at Michael Gove as well. So all sorts of things. Uh, Boris, he said, uh, one quality shown through, disloyalty. Disloyalty to me and later disloyalty to uh, Boris. No, that was uh, Gove, I think. Yeah. So, so basically he's having a, a go at Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, and talking about the possibility of a second referendum. This is David Cameron, the man who called the first referendum when he stepped up to the, to the podium in February 2016. Uh, and then when the result was delivered uh, in favor of leave, he immediately resigns as Prime Minister Basil. What do you make of this this latest uh, resurfacing by Cameron and him calling or talking about a second referendum. Uh, what do you think about all this? Well, he's trying to wash his hands of all responsibility for the mess that we're in at the moment, which is pretty rich, really, because uh, you know he didn't he didn't have to call the referendum. You know, I mean, he was under a certain amount of pressure from from uh, the Eurosceptic wing of his own party, but like John Major before him um, and every other Tory leader in between, he could have faced them down and just said, look, it's not an issue. It's off the table. There's no question of bringing Britain leaving the European Union at this late stage uh, in its development. We've just got to fight our corner from within. But instead, he thought he'd win and he thought that by doing so, he'd uh, be able to see off the rebels once and for all and, uh, you know, uh, you know, and he gambled and lost. Now he's lashing out at uh, everybody around him. I think he might actually be right about Boris. That it was, you know, Boris apparently sat on the fence a long time before coming down on the side of leave. And he did so possibly because he knew he would be the biggest single political beast uh, on the leave side, other than perhaps Nigel Farage, you know, and that it was an opportunity for him to to make a name for himself, which he has, which he's most certainly done. So, yes, I mean, Johnson is an extremely cynical character. There's no doubt about it. His own, yeah, so that was Harriet Harman. I just opened a tab there to uh, discover more about Cameron and, and found some embedded video of Harriet Harman, who wants to take over from John Burko as speaker. Oh, God. By the way, really? that's why she's piping. Oh, yes. 
Yeah. Oh, that'll be interesting. Yeah, she's putting herself forward. She's the so-called mother of the house, being the longest-serving woman MP. Wow. And uh, her name was also touted as a possible interim prime minister, though that old possibility appears to have proceeded. But um, back to Boris, he's also getting a, you know, I mean, people, uh, politicians always accuse each other of liars, of lying, being liars. But Boris is sort of getting uh, more of a reputation for that than is usually the case, put it that way, particularly over this, uh, uh, over his original support for leave, which Cameron says was wholly cynical and based entirely on his, you know, in his own career. And now for the claims of real signs of movement, he told the Daily Mail on Sunday, there were real signs of movement in Berlin, Paris and Dublin on getting rid of the backstop. Uh, but this is being completely denied by EU officials. So somebody is telling porkies, Patrick. Well, I think I think I, I would probably agree with Cameron on that point, as you have. Boris was definitely, by all accounts, a Europhile, especially during his time as mayor of London. That was uh, pretty obvious, very pro-Europe. And he didn't seem to be a Brexiteer, have any inkling towards leaving until probably about April of 2016, only a couple of months out from the referendum. And this is what Cameron... Yeah. And a sort of huge collective sigh went up from the rest of the cabinet, from David Cameron, etc., when he came out in in favour of leave, because it looked up until that point that there would be very few senior members of parliament, let alone ministers or ex-ministers, who would be campaigning for leave. It looked like, you know, it was going to be Gove and a few fringe people, and then people like Nigel Farage, who simply don't have seats in parliament. You know, so uh, he sort of galvanized the Leave campaign in a way that, uh, you know, perhaps nobody else at the time could have done. And I know that uh, other senior conservatives were extremely angry with him at the time for doing so. Yeah. And uh, Cameron writes, he wrote, uh, you know, back when that decision time was coming, uh, whether to you know get behind Leave or remain in the party that uh, Johnson basically says, he, this is what Cameron said, whichever senior Tory politician took the lead on the Brexit side, so loaded with images of patriotism, independence, and romance, would become the darling yes. of the party, he said. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, he's had the chance to wrap himself up in the flag, and, uh, you know, that whole sort of, uh, you know, right-wing patriotic aspect of the Conservative Party, you know, a deep thread of British political culture, really, and society that runs across both parties is what he's now looking to cash in on. You know, people forget that the sort of metropolitan remain a Europhile mentality is largely confined to London and the southeast. If you go around the rest of the country, as you know, Patrick, um, both uh, traditional Conservative and Labour supporters have a very different point of view. Yes, indeed they do. Indeed they do. And we have uh, gone into detail about that. If you listen to our last podcast on the QT, that's up on uh, 21st Century Wire uh, down in uh, Patrick Henningsen's report section. But it's also up on the uh, ACR channel, up on Spreaker and uh, on alternatecanradio.com. We go into detail about this. Uh, We also talked about it on last week's broadcast as well. But, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Basil. Uh, the picture that's being painted in the political establishment and a lot of the uh, mainstream media outlets is a very different picture than what's happening on the streets of Middle England. 
the heartland of the country, the mood is, is slightly different than how it's betrayed by the political classes and some of the mainstream media. So it's definitely worth it's definitely worth keeping an eye on this in the next week. Uh, certainly, if there's a legal challenge, that's going to be big as well. But uh, I just want to say we're going to wrap up this segment at the moment. But I wanted to thank you, Basil, uh, for coming on. Well, I just wanted one last thing, Patrick, before we go. Of course, uh, we have in just a couple of days' time the upcoming Israeli elections for the Neset, where oh, yeah. Netanyahu is really gambling absolutely everything on a knockout win so that he can remain as prime minister and uh, thereby deal with the corruption charges he's facing from uh, a much loftier and stronger position than should, of course, uh, he be voted out of power. And um, last week, of course, he announced uh, his attention officially to annex large sections of the West Bank. Annex is a very nice sort of uh you know nice sort of sounding term um what he really means is you know steal a whole chunk of land from what would form a palestinian state and um just today as part of this hardline nationalist appeal he's making he has held a cabinet minister cabinet meeting in the palestinian territories the israeli cabinet have met in palestine Oh, God. Um, there's a clear signal that that's where they intend to remain. So um, that's a nightmare. Yeah, and and you know we've we had some sort of uh, you know mild condemnation last week about this announcement of annexing the territories. But if if he wins, because you know it's basically it's the prime minister's office or possibly a jail cell for Bibi. Um, if he wins and he goes ahead. You know, once again, the you know even APAC apparently supposedly favours a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine question. But quite how that is supposed to come about when there is no longer a contiguous Palestinian state on the ground, you know, search me. But everybody seems extremely reluctant to condemn this theft in outright unequivocal terms. Yes, of course, they will one to two state solution uh, propose that because uh, they know that it will never happen. Uh, of course, it hasn't happened over the last 30 years. Uh, it's a lot of people have said this is a scam that's been run to buy time to build more settlements, which is exactly what's happened uh, in the occupied territory. So that's a very, very concerning uh, news right there, Basil, that you just uh, served up. But uh, so we'll see. Well, the point is, you know, we, we really should hear from immediately from Boris Johnson. Apparently he did, he did uh, slightly rebuff Netanyahu, who turned up in London last week calling for Britain to take a much tougher stance with Iran. And, and with the dismissal of John Bolton, the wind over the last 10 days is very... It, slightly started blowing against him though of course we've had that missile attack on saudi and the ramifications of that with lindsey graham coming out and saying this now means that the u.s should bomb uh, iranian oil refineries in retaliation but other than that the wind had been blowing against bibi and his desire to immediately start a wider conflagration in the middle east and of course if he loses he could disappear from the from the world stage into a jail cell so you know, he really is playing a game of high-stakes poker. 
it's all up for grabs for Netanyahu. So we'll keep an eye on that as well. And uh, we'll, we'll we'll wrap this segment up. But uh, And thank you very much, Basil, uh, for joining us this week. Thank you, Patrick. Jennifer